Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FASA podcast. We're the FASA engineering team, and we're here to discuss life at an early stage startup through an engineering lens. My name is Sarah Baudet. I've been a support engineer at FASA for a year and a half, and today I'm joined by Leo from our platform team, as well as Cortez from our product team. Leo, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Hey folks, if you've been following the podcast, uh, you already know who I am. I'm a software engineer here on the team. Been here for about five years, working on the platform team right now. Going on, everyone. My name is Cortez Frazier. I'm one of the product leads here at FASA. Uh, I'm honestly really excited just to be a part of the engineering team in your opening there, Sarah. I look for any opportunity to be considered an engineer falsely. <laughs> but but uh, a little bit about my background. Um, prior to coming to FASA, I worked as a uh, senior cybersecurity architect and then I uh, worked as a product manager in a few different companies as well. So really, really excited to be able to share some knowledge from both the product management side and then we're applicable cybersecurity architect side as well. Before we dive into things, I guess, can you tell, give me a, like, explain it like in five, what the product team does here at FASA? Uh, what does the product team do here at FASA? We basically ask engineers to do things, and then they tell us how they're impossible to do, and they're going to take six months. Now I'm playing. Um, <laughs> no, jokingly, I, I think that um, when I think about a product manager's responsibility, the best way that I've heard it is the voice of the customer. And I do truly believe that. And so uh, as a product manager here at FASA, I'm responsible for uh, taking what customers feel as pain points, being able to analyze that, and then turn this into features that we think align with our product roadmap and, and ultimately you know, generate revenue for us as a company as well. Yeah, the problem is that our customers tell us impossible things to do, and then we tell them it's impossible and it'll take six months. <laughs> you know, that sounds about right. Um, and so we have to uh, nicely help them understand <laughs> why their request doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, since you guys are all about telling engineering what to do, uh, how does engineering figure out what to do at different stages in a company? Yeah, I remember, so when I joined, we were three people. We were all engineers. A a bit of background about me. I have worked at the two extremes. I have worked at small three-person startup in the corner office of a mall, and I have worked at 50,000 engineers at Google and nowhere in between. So I actually don't know what the in-between looks like. I can tell you when you start without a PM, as a small company, not having a PM is actually kind of really easy because I think when we, one of the things that a PM became very useful for us for was when we grew to the point of having too many customers for you to talk to and be a full-time engineer at the same time. And when you start out, you have no customers at all. And that is, it turns out it's very easy to talk to zero people. Um, It turns out it's actually very easy to talk to one person as well. And probably somewhere between like zero and one million in revenue, you can actually get a pretty good gut feel even on the engineering team, because not only are you the one writing code, you're also the one talking to customers, answering support tickets, uh, doing on-premises installations, interacting with customer engineers. And so without a PM sort of at the very early stages, it feels like everything is moving it moves more smoothly without a separate team. And it does move more smoothly primarily because you're small enough that you can you can handle that. Cortez, what's sort of the smallest place you've worked at? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and that would be here, actually. I think I'm very similar oh, to you interesting. Where, I, <laughs> where I've worked in multiple extremes, right? And so I have, you know, my GE experience where I was both a product manager and cyber architect, you know, 100K total employees, but, you know, probably about 300, uh, I'm sorry, 30K on the digital side. And then 
Uh, I have Puppet, which is kind of like, I would say, medium size at about 500 employees, you know, only 500. And then obviously we're here uh, Fossa in the low 60s. So this is actually the smallest company I've ever worked at. Fascinating. How does it feel being the being so certainly somewhere between zero people and 60 people or somewhere between three people and 60 people? You probably want your first PM. Um, mm-hmm. And somewhere between zero dollars in revenue, and I'm not sure if I can say the dollars of revenue we're at right now, you want your first PM. I'm curious, Cortez, how has your, how has your experience been PMing uh, here and working at this scale? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and, and I say, like, you know, some of the things that are great, you know, that feel absolutely fantastic is is actually the pace. You know, when I think about PMing at, you know, these large enterprises where you've committed your product roadmap typically a year in advance somehow, which is, you know, absolutely insane, right? Because I, I don't even know what I plan to do in my personal life a year from now. How am I supposed to know in my corporate life, you know, what I plan to do a year from now? But 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 nonetheless, that is, you know, the type of roadmaps that we, you know, very rigidly commit to. And there's basically zero flexibility at that point. And you probably only get, you know, half of the things that you commit to for the year done anyway. Versus, you know, at this stage, what I've really enjoyed is this constant flexing, but, but flexing based off of what you feel is the best opportunity for you in this month and not the best opportunity that you fell 12 months ago, right? Which, which I think can be, um, you know, a bit of a painful experience. I think the other part too, um, that I really, really enjoy, which I think is, you know, maybe alluding to a hot topic later on the call is, is having less emphasis on, you know, processes and procedure and more emphasis on getting work done and getting work done as quickly as humanly possible. Now I am not anti-process, I think in the same way that other human beings are, but I am anti-red tape, right? I am anti-bureaucracies and, and politics and things that just become unnecessary processes for the sake of doing them and not because they add value. So those are kind of my first two initial takes on what I very much value at a smaller company versus the bigger company. I think if I was the one little third thing on maybe what is a little less impactful on the startup side or a little more difficult is frankly, you just have significantly more responsibility, right? And so in a a world or a large enterprise where you may have someone who has a dedicated, you know, scrum master, you're going to have a dedicated PM, you're going to have a dedicated product marketer, you're going to have a dedicated, you know, insert next role. Uh, the, The PM may be working all of those roles in the same way that you as an engineer, you know, are probably both an engineer and SRE and QA, right? And so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Although I... I think it is interesting to note a scrum master as a required role. That's, I think, a, a hot topic that we can talk about later. But yeah, you, you mentioned flexing. And certainly in the very beginning when we were flexing, like now we flex on months. And like, yeah, at the big company, you flex on like the order of years. And I remember in the beginning, we were flexing on like, oh, you went into the customer's office to do a deploy on Tuesday. And then we drank a bunch of Red Bull on, well, no, we went in on Thursday. We drank a bunch of Red Bull on Friday. And then we hacked out a thing. And then we came back the next Tuesday and we shipped the thing. Um, (laughs) And that was truly an incredible, surreal feeling at the very beginning. It was so different from like what I had learned at Google where like a, a a PM mysteriously drops a project into your lap that has somehow gone through the digestive tract of the corporate beast. Yeah. 
No, that, <laughs> that that's funny. And, and I think I have a lot of similar um, experiences there that, that I want to speak to um, as we kind of get further into our stages. But but I am very curious, Leo, you know, as you kind of transition right into, you know, that three plus person stage when you should be looking for your first PM or and, and sometimes maybe that first PM is even assigned. Right. You know, they're kind of given that role. How do engineers kind of gather or know what to do, frankly, at that phase when you kind of have that first improvised PM? That is a great question. How do I know what to do ever at any phase? That is also an excellent question. In the beginning, you're talking to customers. In the beginning, it's like literally Jane from customer X texting you on your phone at two in the morning on Saturday being like, why is the SSO broken? (sighs) Once you get a bit bigger, you begin to discover that some people on your team enjoy talking to customers more than others. Some people on your team enjoy organizing tickets more than others or enjoy thinking about product more than others. I think when you get to to a, a team of around 10 makers, usually you don't really have 10 makers each going out and talking to a customer. Usually you have somewhere between like five and 10 makers and like one person who really is into the customer and the product and strategy and is thinking about it almost always to begin with, that's the CEO because it was their original vision for what the product ought to look like. I remember moving from our improvised PM, which was our CEO and then our first engineering manager, which was me, into hiring our first dedicated PM That's always a real challenge, and it's especially a challenge if you were a team of kids like us who had never done it before, because there's always that instinct of like, I want to hire a grown-up to do grown-up product management, which inevitably means someone who does scrum, someone who does pointing, someone who does tickets. And here's the thing, getting a bunch of kids to do assign points to a ticket when they've never assigned points before and like don't fundamentally grok what that means just a total waste of time it's wasting like six people's time for an hour and so like one of the hard things moving to that first structured pm hire was understanding the right level of process to bring in like we wanted a grown-up to tell us all the right things to do and it turns out that if you had made it to that point you were mostly doing the right things to begin with. And what you needed was like a thin layer of like organization and some light writing and like a person doing, having conversations and coordinating on top of that. Um, And that was an insight that we didn't really realize until probably our second or third iteration of the product team. Mm -hmm. You know, I can, um, I can actually really see how that plays out. And, you know, one of the things I was reflecting on while you're speaking, Leo, is that FASA is probably the small, or not probably, it's without a doubt the the smallest company I've worked at. But in my previous role working at Puppet, I was specifically on our SaaS team, which was our, you know, basically all the other products were on-prem. And so we were building our first SaaS team. And so in that, they would sell us as this, you know, product within a product, right? Or company within a company uh, type deal. And so that was for me very similar to what it was probably like being the first PM or being the improvised uh, kind of PM um, in a relatively early startup. And, And one of the things that I most immediately took away is I feel that at that stage, you know, kind of some of the things you're alluding to is the engineers are the pulse at that stage, right? You haven't really earned the right to say that you're the pulse of the customer because they they know significantly more about the space. They've interacted significantly longer than you have and just have a deeper understanding. I think where you, it becomes pertinent as a PM in, in that kind of, you know, first PM land is really trusting and leaning 
on the expertise that the engineering team has and not kind of coming in with this unnecessary, you know, pompousness and confidence of I'm the PM and do what I say. Right. Uh, Which I think is not helpful. Right. And especially because the first, the first functional PM, your first improvised PM is likely going to come out of that pool of uh, domain experts and previous implementers. And so if you come in and you're like, I know more than you, that it doesn't, it often doesn't work very well. This is a tangent, and I'm really sorry, Sarah, because I know you wanted this to be about product and engineering. I have a chip on my shoulder. I don't think companies within companies work. I was part of Area 120 within Google, which was sort of the structured creation of 20% time to create little startups inside Google. Afterwards, I was part of Google X. Um, And so I have quite a bit of experience uh, with companies inside companies. There is a foundational, fundamental difference between a corporate startup foundry and the real world. And that difference is in the real world, There is nothing more humiliating than recruiting five of your friends to do something awesome and then telling them that you can't make payroll next month. Nothing, (laughs) absolutely nothing is more humiliating than that. And the existential fear of that social humiliation is the most motivating thing I have ever felt in my life. Yep, yep. I have never been as motivated to to edit a investor deck on a subway at 8 p.m. going to an investor meeting uh, after driving through the city, desperately trying to figure out the right words to say and the right product to build and how we're going to manage our next customers and all the things that we need to worry about operationally for the next week and where that cash is going to come from. Never have I ever felt any motivation similar to that level from within a corporate startup foundry. It's just not the same when you know where your next mortgage payment is going to come from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just want you to know, because we're, we're here now, that I have no choice but to comment. And I totally wholeheartedly agree because they do not work whatsoever. And um, I, I will say that while I have aspirations, you know, one day uh, to, to have that experience for better or for worse, um, I don't necessarily have that one. But there is another experience that I can speak to that I think is just as bad, which is within the corporate structure, whenever you have this company within a company startup, within a, a startup as they kind of sell it, you always have this hidden story that people don't speak about, which means that the product that you're building has to fit within the existing sales cycle of the parent company. Mm -hmm. And that may be the case, uh, but it's more than likely the case, at least in my mind, when I was going from an on-prem product to a SaaS product, that it did not fit within the sales cycle of that company whatsoever. And so you typically are creating things that may be fundamentally cool products, but you actually have no systems and processes in place to actually sell these things. You have no relationships with the teams to be able to sell these things to. And thus, my my first learning lesson in a um, you know startup is it doesn't matter how great of a product you build, it means nothing if you don't have a sales team to sell it. Right, because you need the, those synergies with the parent, but like starting your own thing from scratch and having that synergize with an existing parent that's already big enough that it can create its own foundry, so, so hard. Yes, yes, exactly, 100%. Um, and they typically have a ton of bureaucracy already, which you have to force yourself to follow. 
So we've talked about the first two stages, kind of where you don't have a product manager and then you have the improvised or the first product manager. But what about stages, like you mentioned before, you were at Puppet, that's 500 people, or even FASA at 50 or so people. What is it like at that stage? What are the, how do the two teams collaborate? What are the points of friction with it? Yeah, that's a really good one. If you don't mind, Lee, I'm going to jump in first on this one, and I would love to hear your perspective. Um, I think you my know, perspective the- is that there are no points of friction if your company is sufficiently small. Sorry, continue, Cortez. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, I actually do agree with you, though. I, I don't think that there's points of friction. I think that there are personality differences, which as you start to reach this startup scale, I think personalities start to to play out a little bit more. You know, what is your own individual working styles? Do you prefer more, you know, for, for me, right? I'm more of a meeting person versus I think most people at a startup are definitely more like async, right? Just Slack me, you know, let's just have a conversation about it. And so adapting, you know, to those kind of things, I, I think takes a level of, of energy. I think also, and the more important piece for me in the startup, I think at this point, um, and this is one of the things I didn't get to speak to in much detail in the previous stages, but in the first two stages, right, you're, you're purely what I call order takers, meaning whatever your customers want, you find a way to deliver because you just need to show some traction. So that way you can do that first raise round, right? So you can actually make payroll on a consistent basis and you're no, no longer going through that, you know, potential shame opportunity that Leo spoke to earlier. I think after that, that's when you start to reach this point where it's actually to your detriment to be a pure order taker. And you really have to start to be very militant almost about the type of functionality that you want to commit to, right? And 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 I think that that really kind of plays out from this lens of customers in the opening topic will tell you what they want. It is up to you to ascertain, does that fit within your product direction? Does that make sense? Or does that only work for that customer within the confounds of their own enterprise and their own enterprise's limitations? And for me, that is where that separation starts to become very, very distinct and where you have to start having you know conversations internally as a PM at the startup phase, either this particular functionality has to contribute towards growth for my company in some way, or it has to contribute towards retention for my company in some ways. And if it does neither one of those, it doesn't matter, right? We can't do it. We can't spend any time on there. And, and I think for me, that's the piece where I start to see um, some, some, some potential levels of friction uh, between product and engineering is I think rightfully so. I think um, in, in engineers have an innate desire to build the most technically correct thing, which I think is obviously a fantastic goal. I think product, I have a desire to build the most technically correct thing that is cheap, <laughs> which, which naturally introduces some points of friction. Yeah, absolutely. I certainly remember us being in the order taker stage And I think there's also a lot of knock-on effects to being an order taker. I think every feature that you build winds up being an extra thing that you need to support. And that dramatically reduces your engineering velocity. Because one thing that we felt was, hey, when we had 10 engineers, why did it feel like we were moving slower than we had five engineers? Uh, or than we when we had two engineers. Well, it's not that we were moving slower. It's that we were moving actually 
roughly at the same pace, but now we had a blank million dollar revenue stack to support. Now we had bug reports coming in. Now you can't just do a migration willy-nilly because customers will get very angry if you lose their data. And also they're on on on-prem installation, so you have no visibility into how that data is stored. Lots of these things begin requiring a lot more time to do. And the longer you stay in that order taker mode, the more kinds of features that you build, the more you begin to impose this maintenance cost upon yourself. So I think sometimes, certainly this manifests as a point of friction between product and engineering, because the conversation at the surface level sounds like, hey, product wants these things. Why can't engineering go faster? But I think actually a lot of times how this manifests in the business mechanics is a tension between growth and retention or a tension between growth and upsell where you want to build these new things in order to close new deals and expand your addressable market. But at the same time, you have these existing customers and you cannot churn these customers. If you churn these customers, you're not raising that next round. And so there is that tension of how you allocate velocity there. Absolutely. No, and I think you actually really speak to um, a really common problem, which is, yeah, you may only care about growth or retention, but at times those are in direct conflict. And I think that's something that we see play out on a, uh, frankly, a daily basis. I think ultimately then the question, you know, hot topic question that I have for you, Leo, is do you choose growth or do you choose retention at the startup phase? At the startup phase? That's a great question. Certainly before the startup phase, you have no customers to retain. And that phase is a ton of fun because you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. Yes. Um, At the startup phase, I don't really think there's a one-size-fits-all answer. I think it depends on the dynamics of your uh, funding market. I think it depends on the way in which your company was originally funded. FOSA as sort of a weird cultural historical artifact has always been very focused on operating in a financially responsible and efficient way. As much as possible, we pay our own payrolls. As much as possible, we try to grow in a responsible way where our expenses justify our, sorry, our income justifies our expenses. And there are many companies that are not like that. There are many products where that doesn't make sense. If you're building a hard tech product or you're building something that has no existing analog in the market, then you're going to have to do a ton of R&D before you have any first thing that you can sell. And so that kind of company just operates in a fundamentally different way. And there are many, many kinds of these fundamentally different companies. There's really not a one-size-fits-all answer here. No, I I totally agree with you. And and I don't want to recurgitate anything that you've already said. And so I will offer what I think is a, a nice additional insight, which is I am strongly of the belief that if growth and retention are consistently at conflict for your organization, then that likely means you have too diverse of customers. And you should only be prioritizing retaining the customers whose asks are in line with your product direction and your growth plan. Now, of course, at the startup level, that can change very, very quickly. Um, And I think making sure that you're willing to, I guess, deal with the consequences of of changing that ICP, right, that ideal customer profile. But nonetheless, I I think that that's what I've seen play out more frequently than not, in particular at, you know, kind of other startups is 
the, the customers that they're retaining are asking for completely different functionality than the customers that they're building and growing with. And I think at that point, you need to make a determination. Well, the customers that you're growing and growing with, is this going in the product direction that you desire? And thus, I know it's unpopular to say, but you may want to consider churning actually some of those customers who are no longer aligned with your product direction as they are actually slowing you down and then making a worse product for the vast majority of your customers. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That That's a hard call to make in practice, my guy. We've been there. Um, yeah, it is. Because, <laughs> I mean, on one hand, you can, you can choose to strategically churn this customer but then in order to recover that engineering velocity, you have to depre- you have to actually turn down the features that nobody else was using that they were. That actually requires extra engineering work. Alternatively, you can keep that customer and then you can uh, spend more engineering time focused on doing upsell and doing retention. And then you need your sales team to work miracles. Or alternatively, you can try to do both and then you need your engineering team to work miracles. Um <laughs> We have, at times, pivoted to require miracle working from both of those functions. And I, it's not clear to me that there, for some kinds of companies, certainly you can grow responsibly the whole way, especially for bootstrapping. I, I think a lot of this is driven by the founder's decisions, the founder's values, and their approach to building the business. But I have a lingering suspicion that there just exists some kinds of companies where the path dependence really makes it impossible to construct that company without going through a stage in that company's life where miracles are required. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good assessment. Um, and I, I want to make sure that I make it clear. I definitely know that it is hard to do. I think that's the why. You know, I'm a strong believer that product management are one of those roles that most people have no idea how to do. And I think the reality is just because the field itself hasn't really existed for that long. And so anybody that's just like, all right, I have, you know, 20 years of product management experience. It's like, no, you've probably been a project manager for quite some time, uh, but you've only really been like a product manager probably for the past decade at best. And, and, and because of that, I think that ultimately results in a lot of trial and error. And I think throughout that trial and error, we as human beings are actually naturally not excited about turning down money. I just don't think it's a, a human nature um, capacity change, but, but I think it is a very necessary one. And, and for me, that is the inflection point when you reach from... I'm an early stage startup. I'm still kind of making things work to no, now I want to be able to try and find a path towards sustainable growth and, and sustainable AR. You know, one of the other things, Leo, that I'm curious about from your perspective is as I kind of think about these different stages from a PM perspective, one of the things that, that impacts me is I feel that the level of definition that is required as we think about, you know, moving fast and delivering features becomes orders of magnitude more verbose and more descriptive as you become later into your stages. And, and even as you compare, say, a 10-person startup to a 50-person startup to then a 200-person startup, I feel like even that level of definition from an interaction between product management and engineering is orders of magnitudes, much more much more descriptive. Now, I have an opinion on why, uh, which maybe I'll say for the second half of the question, but I'm curious on your perspective on that, and do you agree? 100% true. 100% true. And I would not necessarily tag it to this, pin it to the stage. It is it does happen to be pinned to the stage, but I think the root cause here is the distance between the maker and the buyer. When you are 10 people, literally every engineer 
should be on phone calls with every customer. When you are 50 people, maybe the engineers that you have that are interested, like jump on a debugging call once every month or two. When you are 200 people, the vast majority of your engineers like I, or I actually don't know. I've never been at the 200 stage. When you're at the 2,000 or 20,000 stage, certainly you have entire engineering teams that have never once spoken to the buyer or user of their product. And that, I think, is you need more words to convey the feature that you were trying to build because there's just so much more tacit knowledge about who this user is, what they want, what they don't want, what they actually care about in this feature that is no longer tacit knowledge in the maker. And that's sort of unavoidable because when you're one or 10 people and you are a maker at that stage, uh, what are you going to do? You're going to make a Rails app. You're going to throw all your stuff in Postgres. You're going to call it a day. Mm-hmm. When you are a maker at the 20,000 person company stage, you have so many more scalability concerns, migration concerns, upgrade concerns, security and privacy, compliance Of course, you don't have time to talk to that customer. And so figuring out how to split the brain of the company effectively, I think, is a really hard needle to thread. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I I would wholeheartedly echo a lot of your comments there. And, And I think a lot of things, too, that maybe is a hidden conversation that nobody wants to speak about. But the reality is, like, you know, Leo, you as an engineer, I feel like 90% of the time, you already know exactly what it is to build, right? And so then the question is, why, why do I, as a PM, actually need to write a ticket for these things? And, you know, I would love your take on it. But from my perspective, I actually think that the vast majority of that is an accountability conversation to be able to say that, hey, Cortez and Leo have now agreed that these are the set of things that we're going to work on. And so on the back half of that, if that set of things, you know, doesn't actually solve the customer's problem or doesn't actually, you know, provide the value that we intend it to be. It is not because, you know, Leo somehow did something wrong. It's because we actually just did not come up with the right stuff in the first place. What's your kind of take on that? That is a very interesting take on tickets. Certainly, I think tickets help with accountability. For me, tickets have always been, the value of tickets has always been tracking. And I would also really push back on on you saying that I know what to do most of the time. Uh, I don't. And also, as an engineer, as a, per, as a kind of engineer, I happen to be a kind of engineer who tends to lean towards that product persona. And so certainly, insofar as I do happen to know what to do sometimes, I would not attribute that to kind of a thing that you would expect most engineers to do. For me, tickets have mostly been about tracking in the sense that I have like a bazillion things to do. I have docs to write. I have meetings to go to. Having a ticket there is like a little thing that jogs in my memory. Oh, here is the thing to do and make sure it gets done. I think you're absolutely right that it works as like a good uh, tracker, right? To, to remember the conversations that you've had previously, what you want to kind of commit to when you want to kind of get things done. Um, I, I think you do raise a interesting point that, you know, you may or may not have the full uh, context depending on what it is that you're working in and what it is that's being asked. I think, I, you know, I kind of lean into the fact that, you know, I, if Leo, if I'm just like, hey, you know, we got to build this new vulnerability exploit thing because, you know, that's what people are talking about. You know, I, I think it's more so 
the level of detail um, that I can go into explaining what that is, I think is nice. I think it's more of a validation that we're on the same page than it is descriptive steps, if that makes any sense. Yeah, writing, I have found that writing is always best accompanied by talking, where the writing is a thing to jog your memory of the things that you talked about and a way to sort of provide visibility into conversations for people who are not able to participate. I've never found tickets to be effective for accountability at the small stage because they're just too much overhead. And here's the real, here's the real take on accountability. It's really easy to tell when someone's not pulling their weight. Like it's really, really easy. You don't need tickets for it. If, if you are operating on a team where you need tickets and point velocity and point burn down for your manager to be able to do effective performance management, you should fire the EM of that team because they're not doing their job. Right. It's super obvious when people are when people are not pulling their weight. I think it's mostly about tracking, not just in the sense of like, here's the to-do for this PR to get merged, but also because shipping features is a complex end-to-end process. It is not enough to merely ship the code. You also have to Go back to the customer, make sure they get the thing, make sure the code lands in prod, make sure they're using the thing, get their feedback on, hey, does using this thing actually solve your problem? Mm -hmm. And keeping track of which of all of those steps have occurred when you're running three or four features in parallel as a PM, or when you're building two or three work streams in parallel as an engineer, you can't keep that in your head. It's just impossible. And I think that's where a huge amount of the value lies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I agree with you totally. Um, I think another piece to accountability, which I think is actually the perfect segue to the last stage, which is like, okay, well, how does this then start to differentiate from startup to enterprise? And you know, I think one of those pieces on the accountability side that we haven't spoken to yet is around uh, are we working on the right thing, accountability? And I feel like that manifests typically from engineers really digging into requirements and saying like, okay, well, who's actually asking for these things? What evidence do you have of them asking for these things? And what evidence do we have that this thing is actually going to solve their problem and we don't have to build another thing in the future? And I tend to find that, you know, tickets or or product requirement documents or insert your, your version of those things tend to be these great places for having that negotiation and for having that debate and conversation on, well, here are the conversations that I've had with customers. Here's the evidence that I believe exists for why this feature makes sense. And then here's the actual feature that I think that we should build based off of the evidence for this previous things. And I think that, you know, the last kind of take for me from my perspective is in the same way that the verboseness becomes orders of magnitudes higher as it pertains to feature definition in each of these stages, I actually think the justification required, at least from a PM, becomes orders of magnitudes decreased as you mature throughout these um, stages and get closer to the enterprise side. Would love to hear your perspective on that one. That's very interesting. Certainly, this is a good segue. I think this. I think PRDs are very much related to accountability. I don't think it's just engineers' jobs to dig into PRDs. I think everybody's job. If You should never build a thing that doesn't make sense. Here's a pro tip. If you're a junior engineer listening to this podcast and your manager is like, go build this thing. And you're like, I don't know why you would build this thing. This doesn't make any sense to me. Don't Build the thing. Figure out the thing that actually makes sense. There certainly exist organizations where you are expected to be a code monkey. Don't ask questions. Oftentimes, those people get it wrong. It's always better to have more eyes on, 
are we building the the right thing? And that's, I think, sort of the, the, the root behind Cortez when you were talking about engineers being able to provide value by digging in. It, well, actually, everyone provides value by digging in. It's always better to have more people being able to sanity check, does this thing actually make sense? Every customer you get gives you X new feature requests. When you have 10 customers, you're going to get 10X requests. When you have 1,000 customers, you're going to get 1,000X requests. Hopefully, the number of customers that you have, and that number grows dramatically faster than the number of makers that you have. And even as the number of makers grows you know, linearly, let's say, you actually get a sublinear increase in productivity out of those makers because of overhead and communication and organization. And you can actually, you can bump that actually, you can make that a lot better by investing in better tooling and investing in better process. That I think is a whole other conversation. But the point is the number of requests that you get dramatically outstrips how much your capacity to deliver on those requests grows by. And so I think you actually uh, need more justification, not because the thing that you're doing is becoming from an absolute perspective more valuable, but because you have so much more opportunity cost because you have so many more requests and all of these requests are backed by so much more money. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I totally agree with you from that lens as far as the additional overhead that is ad- added or essentially the additional risk that is taken on by being wrong at, at those stages. And I, I think I honestly have like a ton of thoughts on that one, but I'm going to save it for for kind of the last half of our conversation. I think one of the things that I did want to make sure that I speak on, which is I, I think you are right to a certain extent that the level of justification that is required at an earlier stage can be slightly less because the number of customers that you have at that point, and thus it's basically whoever's shouting the loudest, frankly, and pays us the most, that's who we're going to go with, right? I'm going to kind of call it a day. I think that where you transition from the startup to the enterprise phase, the reason why I'm of the opinion that you actually have to justify less specifically to engineering at that phase is because you are typically from a level of maturity that you are working through this massive just backlog of feature requests and it's just a matter of picking whatever which oh yeah i see request, what you mean because <laughs> you know? somebody has already put in the thinking <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah yeah exactly exactly and but i think the justification towards like your your manager your boss becomes an orders of magnitude increased as you get to these higher phases right to the enterprise phases um you know today i can kind of just build whatever and you know i just have to like in passing convince canis that that it makes sense i think you know in a large enterprise you got to do a a whole presentation a quarter in advance and and be like well this is the thing that i think that we should work on and i got to convince my cio and i got to convince their cto and everybody above them that these are actually the right things and then we actually go build those things so it almost just feels like the justification is tailored more towards the uh, internal stakeholders versus the makers in some of these earlier stages Right. And that switch kind of naturally happens as opportunity cost grows. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would totally agree with you there. So just the last thing that I'll say on this particular topic is from from a PM perspective, is I think about some of the things that I think massively change on the enterprise level, specifically scope to how does engineers figure out what to do in different stages. I think on the enterprise side, you are now very much relying 
on, you know, the PMs at that point, right? You know, as you were speaking to earlier, you're so far removed from the direct customer at that point. Very rarely are you attending customer meetings directly. And so to have that sense of understanding is kind of just lost and thus you are really reliant on your PMs truly being the voice of the customer at that point, truly understanding the customer's pain. But I think what what it starts to occur on the enterprise side is less scrutiny and understanding on is this the right thing to build, but more scrutiny and understanding on how complex is this thing now to build, right? Where uh, in, in a small enterprise, adding a new data source, I'm sorry, in a small startup, adding a new data source, very easy to do. In a large enterprise, you might have to go through 30 approvals to add a new data source. And so does that even make sense as, as something that we need to do? Uh, what are some of the tools you use to help manage product at the at the startup stage we're at now and how does that differ from what you were doing in an enterprise i think google sheets and and, and jira tickets is, is probably about all that you need from the tooling i think everything else fr- frankly actually just slows you down like you know one of my big pain points is like you know we use product board today i think product board is a great tool for being able to consume insights from various other tools, Zendesk, Jira, Slack, so on and so forth, I think is also is another full-time job for me to manage, maintain, and keep up the date. And I think that's the opposite of what you want in this particular stage. What about you, Leo? Any takes? Yeah, let's see. In the early days, we worked off of Post-it notes on Kevin's desk. That's half a joke, question mark. In the early days, we, t- we just talked about what we were doing and we did it. Um, every so often, we threw stuff into GitHub issues. We are now at the stage where we're using baby Jira. We're using cloud Jira with minimal customization. I have heard rumors that there exist companies at the very large stage that use grown-up Jira. Jira that has been heavily customized by consultants and scrum masters and agile people with certifications of five-letter acronyms that I am not familiar with. Um, <laughs> Does the tool matter? Hmm. I think it matters less than the process. Mm -hmm. I think the tool is useful as an encoding of the process. But I think at the end of the day, the process is really the thing that will change the most. And I think it's because the inputs to the process change. In the beginning, you, it's easy to get customer input because you, you only have a handful. It's easy to, to make stuff because you don't really have major engineering requirements. And as your engineering requirements for complexity grow up, things like needing to do migrations, things like needing to scale to certain uh, minimum requirements, things like needing to begin to comply with SOC 2 and security and privacy and stuff like that. Uh, Then you begin building a set of processes and using a set of tools around design docs and code review and approvals there. As you grow up on the product side, as you begin to grow from a handful of customers that everybody can talk to, to a larger handful of customers that one person can talk to, to a a vast pool of customers that nobody is able to talk to, and now you have a support team in front of you, and now you have an an, uh, account executive team in front of you, and a customer success team in front of you, and you have layers between you and the customer, I think the key on that side of the process is how do you get how do you get good ideas to make it all the way from the customer to the engineer 
get executed and then make it back to the customer so the customer can provide feedback on it. That actually, closing that end of the feedback loop is super important because otherwise you're just building features into the ether. Who knows how, how useful it is? If you're a consumer business, actually one way you can close that loop is using analytics. If you're an enterprise business and you're shipping on-prems and your on-prems don't like you to have analytics, sometimes you got to get much more creative than that. Sometimes it, ironically, doing what looks like more of a grown-up business, shipping to enterprises, sometimes involves a lot more like vibes-driven product development I, uh, in my experience. And then I think where you begin to build up those individual pieces of process and the order in which you build them up depends on how your specific company grows. If your engineering complexity grows rapidly, then like that part of your process is going to mature first. And also, I'm so sorry. If your customer base grows rapidly, then that part is going to mature first. And also, good job. You got lucky. If you have a heavy support load, like you're going to have to build that piece first. But the, the whole time... The thing to focus on, I think, is making sure ideas can flow from the customer, get executed, and then flow back to get feedback. I love it. Um, and just one of the last things that I'll chime in on this uh, particular topic before we you know, kind of hit our last topic is, as I think about tools, I think that the tools are actually much more impactful for thing, anything that's going to be customer facing rather than internal tools, right? I think from you know Google Sheets and Jira can kind of get us a long way. Of course, the design team is definitely going to need you know Figma or some equivalent. Use Figma. Don't think about anything else. And uh, for, from there, I think the world becomes your oyster. I think you know Gong, for example, becomes extremely powerful to be able to uh, record customer calls, be able to reference those, and be able to use that as justification in the future for either feature development or actually for why you're not doing certain functionality. I think, you know, what tooling are you using for your documentation and how do you keep that up to date? Are you able to ingest open API specs so that way you can keep your API documentation up to date? It's those type of decisions that I think are actually far more impactful than whatever internal tooling that you're using. And then I think uh, just lastly, if I think about or, you know, we're kind of lead some some things to focus on as a PM, thinking about this transition from startup to, you know, all phases and then ultimately landing in a large enterprise, if I think about a PM, I think it distills down to this, which is ultimately if you work on two-week sprints, uh, every month you get two chances to be right. Every quarter you get six chances to be right. Every year you get 24 chances to be right. And only thing that you need to focus on is being right more often than you're being wrong. So in the case of you know 24 chances, you got 13 chops that you need to be right more often than you need to be wrong. And I think that that level of pressure on how frequently that you're right, and, and by right, I mean building something that your customers actually want, that they actually use, and then ideally something that they actually pay for or would be willing to retain based on um, becomes much more impactful in these earlier stages than they do in the enterprise stages. I think in enterprise stage, you could be wrong all 24 times and actually really wouldn't matter that much because you probably already have this giant backlog of features and functionality anyway that you can then lean on. I think in a startup, if you're wrong all 24 times, one, you probably should be let go as a PM, but then two, um, you've probably also ran that company into the ground. And so I think that if I were to kind of just give some very general advice for someone thinking about being a product manager in earlier stage companies and maturing throughout large enterprises is really focused on, you know, within those chunks, how do you be right? And then what information do you need to be right? Which is typically relying heavily on your engineering team. Yeah. Enterprises, I think it's a lot more about don't kill the golden goose. And startups, it's more like there is no golden goose. Throw everything at the kitchen sink and let's see what we can sell. Um, <laughs> certainly when you're building a process, process is the, mo is the most important part. Your tool should support your process. 
minimize the number of tools you have so that you you can reduce overhead. Also, shout out to Gong. If anyone from Gong is listening to this, you have built a tool that allegedly is used for training salespeople. And I'm sure it's awesome for that. But also, you have designed a tool that is excellent for capturing product insights. And if you could please build me that product insight feature, I will pay you so much money. Yes. If not, we'll go build it ourselves and start a new company. (laughs) JK, JK. (laughs) With that, though, you know, uh, Leo, before you let you go, I I have something that I really, really uh, can't wait to get your take on, which is, you know, as we kind of think about things that startups should focus on, do you consider agile and agile methodologies to be something super important to focus on? Agile is not real, man. Let me elaborate. What you, the motions that you go through as you build things kind of don't matter. Your customer doesn't see them. From your customer's perspective, they may as well not be real. It doesn't matter if you're doing agile. It doesn't matter if you're doing waterfall, though maybe don't because it just like feels bad. Feels terrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) What matters is at the end of the day, you're shipping things, you're making money. If you were to ask me to to design process around product and engineering teams, what I would focus on is, does this feel like it's moving the needle on shipping? Does it uh, does the accounting make it tell us that it's moving the needle on revenue? Those are the only two things that matter. And I would very much hesitate to to make big movements that are ideologically driven and instead to make small movements, that are pragmatically driven, that are driven by things that we hear concretely that our team wants. Because if you have survived to that point, you are probably doing something right. Don't mess that something right up. So I just want to make sure that I echo your comments a thousand percent because agile is terrible. Agile is crap. Agile is insert some explosives I was used if this was not a corporate professional podcast. And I just want you to know that like, I don't know. I think we get a couple F-bombs for our R rating here. Oh, there we go. I like this. I like this. Ultimately, if you think about this, right, you know, while I think there are merits to agile, right, two point, I think confining things into two week sprints, tons of sense, Uh, being able to define Uh, features from the lens of your customer's outcome and not from the the lens of the delivered outcome also makes a thousand sense. I think I could just extract those two things from Agile and throw away everything else and and, and not care about it and would be just as successful and it'd be just as impactful. The amount of times that I've seen engineer teams get together for one week in person to put post-it notes all over the wall so they can Oh my God, with flashcards and voting for points. (laughs) Yes. Oh my goodness. Just so you can do an interesting game. Like Let's call it what it is. That is in order to keep, and I'm not here to put any digital transformers out of work. I want them to keep their jobs, um, but that is 100% to keep them employed, that is not to make your company better. And so, you know, try to give them a more impactful role that actually makes sense. Maybe turn them into PMs. I don't know. But um, I, I don't see value whatsoever. Scaled, out, scaled agile framework, same. Insert whatever new thing we'll come up with six months from now, same. Spend your time and energy on making the best damn product that you possibly can. And then later, go back and write all your tickets as beautifully as you possibly can. Yeah, build stuff. Do pointing if it's useful for you, but like in my experience, honestly, pointing is sometimes useful for a handful of tickets and just give me back the rest of the hour so I can go play Smash with my team. 
Yeah, but pointing for a PM is useful just so I can know, like, is this a massive thing or is this like a tiny thing? Outside of that, like three to five, I, I don't care. So Right, exactly. <laughs> and I think this echoes a lot of what we've mentioned in previous episodes where the smaller your company are, you can feel bad processes and mm-hmm. when it's not being effective for your team and don't get caught up in going through the motions, just do what feels more right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, I think we can go ahead and wrap up here. Thank you guys for coming in and talking. Uh, do you have any final points aside from agile is bad? Yeah, I was going to say that needs to be the opener for the podcast because that's all I got for you. Yeah. <laughs> Agile bad, Haskell good, due process if you need it. There it is. Wise words from an indecent man. And by FASA. <laughs> yes. I love it. Well, then in that case, we will see you guys next time. Thanks for coming.